Good morning, everybody. Now, um, a bit over a month ago, a group of us sat in this room and prayed for drenching rain. So, it's our fault. Um, but it is lovely, isn't it, to hear this drenching rain that's doing so, good, so much good out there, even if it's a little inconvenient and has kept a few of us away today. But it's, um, it is good to be able to gather in a nice dry spot, even if it's just a little loud. Upstairs, I hope you're going to be able to hear me upstairs. You've got a, two disadvantages at the moment. You've got very close to a tin roof, which is not much help. And then also our speakers are still getting tuned for you up there and we're still not quite there. So we apologise that it's been a bit soft. Can you all hear me fine right at the moment? Thumbs up. Awesome. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness uh, to us in um, in giving us this um, abundant rain. We thank you too for your goodness in um, your abundant love. Uh, that has, um, has come upon us in uh, what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. We pray now that as we embark on this new series in the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph, that you, would, um, that you would help us to understand you better, understand ourselves better, and understand how we ought to be living in light of what you have done for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is really in the way. Now I can't see it and hopefully you can see me. I can still remember when it was released. First it was the book in 2003 and then it was the movie in 2006. The Da Vinci Code caused a massive stir in both Christian and non-Christian circles, raising doubts as to whether we had the full story of Jesus and whether there being a conspiracy by the church to hide the truth for thousands of years. Dan Brown raised the importance of bloodlines, outlandishly claiming that there are still those alive today that are in the bloodline of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, who apparently had a daughter, and there are still descendants of their children today. A truth that has been kept secret by the Catholic Church and to which today they continue to hide at any cost. And so there was a great interest in bloodlines around this time. But as we begin our new series in the life of Joseph, we'll see that the more important bloodline in the Bible is not anything since Jesus Christ. Frankly, you won't find one that comes from his particular bloodline, uh, other than his family's bloodline. But what came before Jesus? Indeed, the book of Genesis, as you may know, tells us about the beginnings, the origins of the bloodline of Jesus. And as we'll discover as we delve into this last main section of the book of Genesis over the coming weeks, this section is more than just the famous story of Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. Though, if you have had the chance to see the musical, you'll no doubt recognise some of the details from this section of the Bible. But there is so much more to the story of Joseph and his brothers than that. In fact, this great final section of Genesis is the climax of the book of Genesis, which is God's transformation of a dysfunctional family and the establishment of what is to come in the rest of the Bible. And so to set it in the context, we need to go back. And we need to go back to the promises God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12. Now, this is a bit of a scripture lesson, but I wonder if you can remember the three promises that God gave Abraham. 
Firstly, that there will be, he be the father to many nations. I'm hearing somebody want to yell them out. Was that Mount and Philippa? Okay. One. Land. Two. Blessing. Well done. A couple of scripture teachers jumping in there too, I notice. But land, so a people, that he'd be the father of a great nation. Secondly, that the people um, would be, uh, that God's people will be given a land of their own. And thirdly, that they will be a blessing to the whole world. Now, by the time we reach chapter 37, God has taken this flawed and strife-stricken family, and especially Joseph, the less than perfect teenager we meet in chapter 37, and make them a blessing to the whole world. And in so doing, God introduces us here, right at the beginning of the Bible, to his purposes for God's people, and indeed for Christians in the world today. And so as we come to chapter 37, we begin to see the promises of Abraham fulfilled. From Abraham, through Isaac, and then Jacob, who was renamed Israel in chapter 32, come 12 sons, each with their own families. And so by this point, there are now 70 Um, within this family group. Interestingly, an important number in the book of Genesis, symbolising the nations of the world, which is kind of hinting that the people of God have now grown to be an international people. The land that God promised has become the hope of this family. Living in Egypt at the end of our section today, at the chapter 50, um, with Jacob and Joseph both wanting to be buried in the new lands. And so as we come to our section, we find that God is progressing the fulfilment of this promise and the beginning of the kingdom of God here in these chapters. But in this extraordinary and frankly highly entertaining tale of jealous brothers and blood-soaked robes of dreams and intrigue, there is one dominant and serious theme that runs through this whole section of Genesis and indeed the Bible. This is the theme of God's gracious sovereignty as he unfolds his plans to save the world from its hatred and sin. And so what we'll see over the coming weeks is that behind the crazy and mixed up family that we come across here in uh, Genesis, God is calmly working out his plan of salvation as he has been doing throughout history. And when Joseph at the end of this section reflects upon all that takes place in our chapter today, He says to his brothers these words, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You see, even through the wickedness of these brothers, God was still accomplishing his good and perfect salvation plan. And so in these chapters, we're introduced to the God whose great plan climaxed in the coming of Jesus Christ who could, of course, said exactly these same words. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives to those that put him to death. And so as we contemplate the crazy chaos of our world, we do find that God is still sovereignly unfolding his awesome plan to save many lives. And the wickedness of people is never going to get in the way of God fulfilling his plans. Now in chapter 37 that Linda just read for us, and in chapter 38, which follows this chapter, we're introduced to two men, Joseph and Judah, who will be respectively saviour and ruler of Israel. Joseph, who is Jacob's spoilt brat favourite, 
trained by God through a whole course of unfortunate and tragic events, sold into slavery and unjustly imprisoned, is transformed by God to become morally pure, loyal, discerning and loving. Indeed, a classic story of rag to riches, he becomes the Prime Minister of Egypt, overseeing the drought supplies in Egypt and indeed to the nations of the world. And then if we had time, we could look at Judah, who was, um, who was not uh, looking, uh, who were not looking at as much this series because it's the life of Joseph, but he is also transformed. He begins, if we were to read chapter 38, as an appallingly compromised man in chapter 38, seeking to fit in with the secular culture of his day. Yet as we trace his development across these chapters, he too is transformed to be one, of, uh, one who by God's power mediates reconciliation with his family even to the point of sacrificing his own life for the sake of his younger brother Benjamin out of love for his father. A pattern, of course, for the ruler who would come after him, his own descendant from his own bloodline, Jesus of Nazareth. But this saviour of the world and future ruler of the nation emerged from a very dysfunctional family. It was a family torn apart by conflicts and we're introduced to this family in chapter 37 where we find Jacob living in the land of Canaan. Reading from verse 1, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. And so what we have from 37 to 50 is Jacob's family line. We've had Abraham, we then went through Isaac, now we have Jacob, now we're looking at his family line in the last part of the book of Genesis. Now, as we read this chapter, and indeed, if we were to go on to read chapter 38 as well, we won't find a whole lot of mention of God in these chapters because, frankly, this is a pretty godless family at this stage. But behind the scenes, the living God is at work. And so, as we look today at chapter 37, we'll see that Joseph, the future saviour, is rejected by his brothers. It's kind of the theme of what's going on in this first chapter Indeed, there are two words that are repeated over and over again in this first chapter. You might have noticed them. Brothers hated. Brothers hated. And if you want to put those two words together, you pretty much know what this chapter is about. We're introduced to Jacob's line with Joseph, the second youngest of the 12 sons, 17 years old. But it doesn't take long uh, into this passage to see that Joseph is hated by his brothers. And to a degree, as you read these verses, you can see why. I mean, look at verse 2. He brings his father a bad report about his brothers. And so straight away, he is a disloyal snitch. There he is, goes off, checks on the brothers, comes back to his father and tells them, they're doing bad stuff, Dad. Not working. Well, not a great start. Then in verse 3, Jacob very unwisely loves Joseph more than his other sons and we read that he makes him a richly ornamental robe. Now, if you go to chapter 37 in all the commentaries, well, there's just pages about the robe. They make a lot about the robe. But I think all we need to see at this point is what Joseph does with this robe. Unwisely, stupidly, insensitively, in front of the brothers, makes a big deal, which only make the brothers hate him all the more. In verse 5, we read that Joseph has a dream about some sheaves of perhaps corn or wheat, foretelling of his brothers bowing down to him in the future. 
Now, you might want to keep that dream to yourself, but not Joseph. No, no, no. Joseph wants to gather all the brothers together and tell them all about it. I mean, just imagine it for a moment. Hey, hey boys, hear this dream that I had last night. There's 12 sheep. It's us 12. And all you 11 are bowing down to me. What a great dream. Now his brother, he's 17. He has 30-something-year-old brothers. How are they going to react to that? Not going to be very happy, are they? In a culture where number one is number one, number two is number two, number 11 is number 11. And so uh, they're going to make a, a big scene about this, aren't they? Um, uh, and they're not going to like it. But then, in verse, uh, we find out, in verse 9, he has another dream. This time about the sun, moon and stars all bowing down to him. Well, you might be saying, somebody's trying to tell me something. But, Joseph, what does he do with that? Well, not only does he tell his brothers, this time he tells his dad. And so in verse 11, we're told that his brothers were jealous. Interesting, like Jesus' mother, a few years on, we're told that Jacob pondered these things in his heart. He didn't react in quite the way you may expect him to react when he's told that his father is going to bow down to his 17-year-old son. Now, it's easy to learn some um, home truths from these simple details as you walk through a narrative in God's Word, isn't there? There's times where you can find out all sorts of things that are worth noticing as you walk through this about family life in this case. And here we can see a whole bunch of things, but one, of course, is the danger caused by favouritism. The competition it creates, the envy and jealousy uh, it produces when unaddressed by parents. Perhaps some of us have suffered from this in our own family lives. And it can mess us up. And we may need God's help to be reconciled with our siblings and indeed our parents because of this. I think in part, God allows these details being there to be informative to us. Favouritism is a no-go. James will bring up about that very issue in a different way later on. But favouritism, don't do it. For all you parents out there, if you have a favourite, keep it to yourself. Don't make a big deal about it and get them a fancy coat that all the others will be envious of. Uh, it doesn't work. It causes a lot of problems. And then we have the danger of self-righteousness, disloyalty and arrogance and the impact that that can have on others, leading to envy, jealousy, which harbours in the heart and can cause all kinds of dysfunction, not only in our own families but carried out into our other relationships, if not properly addressed. There's a lot we can learn from God's Word as we work our way through it. They're not the main reasons they're there, though, but we can work it through as we work it through. So don't miss the lessons if we need to, if we need to see the lessons. Have ears willing to listen as we walk but the story goes on and where does it lead? Well, we read in verse 12 to 36 that Joseph is killed off or at least disposed of by his brothers. Verse 18, we read that they see him coming in the distance and before he reaches them, they plot to kill him. And notice what they say in verse 19. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Interesting, in verse 21, Reuben, the oldest of the brothers, tries to save Joseph. But Reuben's actually on the nose. 
If you go back a few chapters, Reuben's actually just committed incest with his father's concubine. And he's now been disqualified from being the heir and leader. And although they kind of take the advice of the older brother, ultimately this fails. But then verse 25, we read that a caravan of Ishmaelites just happened to turn up on the scene, rather providentially. And Judah, showing um, just how depraved he is at this moment, can see an opportunity to make a little bit of money on the side and convinces his brothers to sell Joseph to them as a slave. Now think about this for a moment. He has claimed, hey, he's our brother, he's our blood, we can't kill him. Let's sell him as a slave. Now, I don't know what your siblings are like. They might irritate you. They might be really, um, really hard to live with. Are you going to sell them as a slave? I mean, it's awful, isn't it? It's an appalling thing to do. But that's precisely what they do. But the plan backfires. For when they go home to tell Jacob that his son has been killed and show Jacob Joseph's robe, Deceiving, interestingly, with goat's blood, which, if you know the story of Jacob, Jacob used goat's skin to deceive his father to give him the firstborn blessing instead of Esau. Remember that? The writer of Genesis wants us to put these things together as we walk our way through. And so with what deceived um, Jacob's father, he himself is deceived... Jacob refuses the comfort of the, brothers and, uh, of the brothers and sisters of Joseph and pledged to mourn Joseph's death until he himself joins them. In other words, what they thought would actually put them back in favour and, and get um, things back the way they should be with their father, he's now out of the picture. He's in a corner, mourning, wants to die. And so they're in no better place than they were beforehand. And so we're left at the end of, cha- of this chapter with a miserable picture of a completely dysfunctional family and we're told that unbeknownst to Jacob and his sons the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar one of Pharaoh's officials the captain of the guard and so Joseph now well placed to be used by God for the next part of his plans so friends as we read this chapter with Christian eyes that is, this side of Jesus. We can't help but see the parallels of the life of Joseph to the, death of Je- to the life and death of Jesus. For Jesus too was hated by his brothers. He too was sold off for just a few coins. He too was put to death, only to rise again. And it's clear too in this passage that what actually really incenses the, brother, uh, the brothers is not just Joseph's arrogance, you know, the little Turk that's come up from the 17-year-old teenager and his arrogance, but the actual content of the dream. What's the content of the dream? That they would have to bow down to their younger brother. Interestingly, the very same reality of what the religious leaders would refuse to do when it came to Jesus. The idea that they would have to bow down to this one who claims he has been sent by God. They refuse to do that and the same goes for today too, doesn't it? People just don't want to bow down and serve Jesus. And so they'll latch onto anything that gives them the excuse to reject his rightful claim over their lives. And of course, that's why books and movies like The Da Vinci Code are just so popular because they just raise the possibility that there might be a reason to doubt the historicity of what we know about Jesus. 
and so give us a right to reject his call on our lives. I mean, people, we, we want to make our own moral decisions. We want to live our own way. We don't want to come in underneath the rule of another. And so if Jesus' morality can be somewhat undermined or his words somewhat questioned, then we can escape his grip on our lives. Well, so it was in the first century, so it is today. We hate to bow down to God's chosen ruler. In fact, that's a theme that runs from this section of Scripture right the way through Scripture to the point of Jesus, that no matter what saviour God sends, he's hated and rejected, pointing towards the great saviour that comes who is also rejected. But despite the wicked um, schemes and plans of the brothers, verse 36 shows us that God has simply taken Joseph to Pharaoh's court in Egypt. God has actually used the wickedness of these brothers to get Joseph exactly where he wants him. Just as later Jesus would be crucified and raised from the dead to be enthroned over heaven and earth as God had always planned, actually using the wickedness of the religious leaders to accomplish his very purposes. Well, friends, what do we learn from this section of God's word? Well, on the surface, the account would be quite depressing if it finished at the end of chapter 37, wouldn't it? But as we'll see over the coming weeks, This is not the end of the story. In fact, it's just a starting point. And so the first lesson to take from this introduction is that God can and does transform dysfunctional people. Like Jacob, like Jacob's family, like many of the families where we may come from, God is able to transform these corrupt and wicked men and make them great men. And so what starts in chapter 37 is developed over time through much pain often through many emotional conversations and conflicts that occur as we travel through these chapters. But this wicked family, and in particular Joseph, is powerfully transformed. He is reconciled to his father and he is reconciled to his brothers. Now friends, this is great news for us. For the same God is here today and is involved in our lives as well. He is able to transform us, whether it be we who are dysfunctional, and let's be honest, we've all got areas in our lives that need to change, or whether we've come from a dysfunctional family. By God's God's power, we can be transformed. Only this last week, this truth became real for me in one of my relationships. In my early days as the leader of the previous church that um, that I led, I had a staff member that I found very difficult and challenging. And in my leadership of him, I made many mistakes and things finished pretty badly. Since then, by God's amazing mercy and grace, he showed me in areas where I went wrong. I wasn't the only one that went wrong, but I did go wrong in some of the ways that I led and where I needed to change. I am now not, by God's grace, the same leader I was then. And this week we got together and we reconciled with one another. We admitted our failings. We sought one another's forgiveness. It was a God moment, an amazing moment. And I thank God for it. You see, friends, it is possible to change. 
It is possible to be transformed, not by our own strength or cleverness, but by the God who transforms lives. And that can be true for you too, friends, and for your families. You see, your family may well be dysfunctional. I don't know, maybe your mum was an alcoholic, your dad left when you were young, your brothers and sisters perhaps struggle with depression. Many of us come from dysfunctional families. Yet the truth is that the power of God can change and transform people. There's a lot of stories of that that I know even in this congregation here. All is not lost. There is hope for you and I if we put our trust in God. And the truth is if you've been around Christians for long enough, you'll see that transformation happening before your eyes. You'll see people change. I mean... Look around you here at church. There are people here that are slowly over time, often through difficult and challenging circumstances, being transformed by the power of God from dysfunction to becoming more and more like Jesus. And so the first take-home message today, and yes, I'm pinching the whole of, the, um, whole of this Joseph story, and so the preachers that come after me, which includes me, by the way, I'm coming up again in, later in the series, will hate me for this. But the, one of the main things we'll see across this time is that God does have this real, gives us this real hope for the power of God is at work today transforming lives. That's why our vision here at Menai Anglican is introducing Jesus, changing lives. When we put our trust in Jesus, he can and will by the power of the Spirit change us. And the second thing I think is worth taking from our passage today is God can even use the wickedness of mankind to bring about blessing to others. Is it not striking that it's actually through the betrayal of Joseph's brothers that God got his saviors at Egypt where he needed him? And if we had the chance to look at it more carefully today, we'd see in chapter 38 that it was through an even worse circumstance, the immorality of Judah with his daughter-in-law Tamar, who bore twins, one of which is Perez, the father, grandfather of King David, the ancestor of Jesus. And so it was through this wickedness that God was accomplishing his plans to make Joseph the saviour and to bring kings from the line of Judah, all which we see come together in his great plan to give us Jesus, the saviour king. It is by the wickedness of his jealous people, the children of Israel, who killed Jesus by putting him on the cross, that God used that very wickedness to save you and I. For those of us here today who have not yet put our trust in the saving work of Jesus, can I just give you a little bit of a warning to be careful of what you listen to when it comes to the attempts to discredit Jesus out there in this world? Things like the fiction made up in Da Vinci Code as this is what we'd expect our culture to be pushing in its determination to get rid of Jesus. For no matter how hostile our church is towards Jesus, the truth is that Jesus has been made both saviour and king and nothing's going to prevent God from using his work to save many lives, including yours, if you're willing to turn to him. Why not make that happen today, friends? Turn to him for your salvation. He is the one that guarantees it for you. And for those of us who are believers, don't be discouraged by the many attempts out there to discredit Jesus. 
that would inevitably come our way. Usually as we come up to Easter, there's one new one that comes out each year um, to try and take us away from trusting that we have the real Jesus. Don't worry about it, as it will not make any difference to God fulfilling his plans. Nothing can stop the sovereign Lord and his plan of salvation through his saviour king. For God can even use the wickedness of mankind to accomplish his great plans. Praise be to God. Let me pray for us as we um, embark on this great little journey together into the life of Joseph in this last part of the book of Genesis. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for this introduction into the life of Joseph as we see uh, this dysfunctional family. Uh, really, really, uh, as we work our ways up until this point and even in this chapter itself, we can see just how godless this family were and yet you were pleased to use even the wickedness of the brothers' actions to bring about your great purposes, to bring salvation to this people that you have, um, you have created and into the very church we belong into today, ultimately through Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to have hope even in amidst the dysfunction that we find ourselves in, that you can change and transform lives. And, Father, we pray that you would help us to see that um, nothing stops your plans from coming um, to fruition that, uh, and that we can um, have hope and trust in that as well. Father, please help us to learn from this journey. Please help us to see those little incidentals of the, the dangers of favouritism and the, uh, the envy and the strife that can so pull us apart and destroy us. Help us to learn those lessons along the way, but help us to see that ultimately... This picture is a picture of your great work of salvation that will find its fulfilment in the Lord Jesus. And so, Father, I pray today for those who may not know you, who may not have accepted the salvation that Jesus offers, that they will look into that, that they will investigate that, that they will put their trust in Jesus. And I pray for the rest of us that we will not fear what the world wants to do to Jesus, but we will know that you will fulfil your plan and that you're doing that very plan in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.